the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. He understands that they have ulterior motives. He says, I find no no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, verse 5, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, up in the north, and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. See, Pontius Pilate is going to do anything he can not to have to deal with this. Jesus' trial consisted of beatings, mockery, and being passed from one political leader to the next. He faced misconceptions and complete lies at every turn. Every person Jesus stood before had the power to set him free, but none did. In fact, Pilate caved and freed a mass murderer instead. But as Pastor Gary reminds you today, this is all part of God's bigger plan. Jesus needed to endure all of this so he could get to the cross, so he could save the world. What a Savior we have the privilege of knowing. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 23, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's open our Bibles, Luke 23. Uh, let's close out, Lord willing, the, the uh, book of Luke this evening. I know Andy's been counting down the days, so you know he had to point out a few weeks ago we've been in this book for over a year. I personally am just always thrilled to open God's Word. But anyway, uh, Luke 23, some count, you know, and others just bask in the goodness of the word. But so this is where we are, Luke 23. So, and these two chapters do go together because Luke 23 and 24 have to do with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the, uh, this really is the, the critical matter concerning our faith. The doctrine of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. These closing chapters it is what makes Christianity unique among all other world religions. Consider, if you will, that all other world religions worship either self or a multitude of gods. In Hinduism and Buddhism, self is really central to each religion. And the pursuit is either Atman, which is the spiritual self, or Anatman, the non-spiritual self. Hinduism boasts more than 330 million gods. So you have a variety of religions, and then you have, there are three religions that are monotheistic. 
There are only three that really believe and worship in one singular God, and that is Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, the God of Islam is Allah, which in Arabic just simply translates chief God. That is because Muhammad chose one God among 300 that the Arabs worship to call the principal God Allah, which was the moon God. Very different from the God of the Bible. Christianity then and Judaism are the only two faiths that worship a single God. And of course, Christianity has been engrafted into the vine, into the branch of Judaism. We do worship the same God as the Jews. But again, what distinguishes Christianity from Judaism is that although we worship the same God, Christians believe that Jesus is in fact Messiah, who came to fulfill the ultimate purpose of that one true and singular God. And so as we look into these closing chapters, this This is the foundation of all that we believe, having to deal with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And again, it is what makes Christianity different from all other world religions. It is illogical and incompatible to say that all paths lead to God when you study all the world religions and realize that that cannot be true. We cannot all be right if we embrace truly what the doctrine of each religion believes and professes They are contradictory. They are not complementary. So these two closing chapters is is what Christianity hinges upon. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, uh, Lord willing, tonight we're going to make our way through. And a lot of this is kind of a straight read. I'm not going to do a lot of commentary throughout because I I want us to just see this story in its fullness as we bring the Gospel of Luke to a conclusion. So when we left off at the end of chapter 22, you remember that Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. They want to kill him because they don't believe that he is God in flesh. They do not accept that he is Messiah. So the statements that Jesus makes to their unbelieving ears sounds blasphemous. Now, blasphemy, according to the Old Testament scriptures, was a capital offense and it was grounds for killing someone. The problem is that the Jews were not able to execute capital punishment because their hands had been tied by the Roman government. Just a couple of years before this scene here, around the year 30 AD, the Roman government had forbidden the Jews, because now the Jews and Israel was a part of the Roman Empire, the Roman government had forbidden the Jews to execute capital punishment according to their laws, had stripped them of that power. And so, therefore, now the Sanhedrin, who don't believe in Jesus, they want him dead because of the crime in their ears of blasphemy that he, a mere man, claims to be God, but they can't kill him because they they have to submit to the Roman authority. So, what are they going to do? They're going to go to the Roman authority. In this case, it's Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of the province of Judea there in Jerusalem. And they're going to trump up different charges to try to get Jesus killed under Roman law because the Roman government could care less that Jesus professes to be God. That's not a capital offense as far as they're concerned. You Jews can believe whatever you want. You know, we don't have to believe any of this. So they have to, the Jews have to trump up charges against Jesus to get him killed. And what they're going to trump up is the charge of sedition against the Roman Empire. That's basically, in a word, what they're going to charge Jesus with. They're going to try to convince Pontius Pilate 
that Jesus is leading a rebellion, that, that he is really encouraging treason against the Roman government, that he won't submit to Caesar as king, and so for that he should be executed. So here we go into chapter 23, verse 1, where it says, Then the whole assembly, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Okay, now he's going to repeat that three times. So I don't find any basis to kill this guy. You know, he, he, he claims to be king of the Jews, but that's your thing, you Jewish people. Okay? I'm only concerned about things related to the Roman government. Now, John's gospel tells us that the chief priests say to Pontius Pilate, if you let this guy go who claims to be a king, you are no friend of Caesar. So they're going to try to push him against the wall here and, and put him under some pressure and make him think that if you let this guy go, you're going to be defying Caesar as king. And then, amazingly, and this just goes to show you how, how low the, uh, the Jewish uh, leaders will stoop to try to get Jesus crucified, they actually say something that is blasphemous themselves. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, you don't have to turn, but in chapter 19, verse 12, they say to Pontius Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And then they add that Caesar only is king. Caesar is king? You guys are just now proclaiming that he is king rather than God being king? But they're going to stoop to this low level to try to get Jesus crucified. Well, Pilate doesn't buy any of this. He, he sees through their duplicity. He, he, he understands that they have ulterior motives. He says, I find no, no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, verse 5, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee up in the north, and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. See, Pontius Pilate is going to do anything he can not to have to deal with this, all right? I know you've never heard of a leader of government who just wants to defer and not deal with things, but just pretend and think about this story here. So we have Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of Judea. You have Herod, who is king, appointed by the Roman government, because he is an Idumean, but he has Jewish roots, and so he's kind of the liaison between the Jews and the Roman government. And when Pilate finds out, hey, Herod is here. You're a Galilean? Why don't we just send you off to Herod? He doesn't want to deal. And I'll tell you why Pontius Pilate doesn't want to deal with him when we get through the text here. So he sends him off uh, to Herod. And verse 8 says, when Herod saw Jesus... He was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. 
And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. You know, when, when you're fighting against the same cause and you don't like somebody, and then you can become friends, I guess, in that way. Now look, folks, this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. So this guy, this Herod's father, was the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This guy's father was the one who gave that edict about all the baby boys being killed in Bethlehem, trying to eliminate Messiah. Now this is Herod Antipas, the son. Herod Antipas, this guy in the story, is guilty of having John the Baptist executed. So, you know, Jesus comes before him, and Jesus, you know, realizes this, this guy just wants a show here. He just wants me to perform, and, you know, like it's a circus or something. I'm not going to perform for him a miracle. And so he doesn't say anything, keeps his mouth shut. Herod's frustrated, sends him back to Pilate. Now Pilate's got him back at his doorstep. And verse 13 says, A Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Okay, so this is the second time he's saying, I find no basis to kill him, but I tell you what I'll do, just to try to make you happy, I'll flog the guy, I'll punish him, and then I'll release him. No, that wasn't good enough. Verse 18 says, with one voice, they cried out, these are the Jews, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. Now, before we read the next section, he's going to cave. Pilate is going to cave to the cry of the crowd. But I'll tell you the reason why he's so resistant here. You read a little bit about Pilate in terms of history. Pilate is a very bloodthirsty man. He was ruthless. He he was quick to kill. He believed in every kind of punishment, every kind of torment. This guy was looking for any opportunity to have somebody killed. And he got a terrible reputation because of it. I mean, as ruthless as the Romans could be, historically speaking, Pontius Pilate made them all pale in comparison. This guy was just bloodthirsty and ruthless. And as a result, he got called on the carpet by Rome. History tells us that he was on probation. At this time, that Caesar had said to Pontius Pilate, you know, we like the idea that you, you know, like to put down rebellions and you like to execute prisoners and all this kind of stuff. But you're, you're kind of overboard. You know, you're really going crazy on us and you're on probation. And if you if you continue down this path, you will be recalled to Rome. So see, Pontius Pilate is trying to avoid this because he doesn't want to be recalled. He's on probation, history tells us. And so as a result, however, of the cries of the people, it tells us in verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. That's Barabbas, the one they'd asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. 
Very tragic here. Now, Barabbas, uh, he is guilty of insurrection and murder, but there was this tradition of Passover where the Roman government, trying to ingratiate themselves with the Jews, would release a Jewish prisoner, trying to make him happy. So the Jews are calling on kind of this this little favor. Why don't you release a prisoner? This is what you do at Passover. You take Jesus in, in his place. The irony here is Barabbas, the name of this guy, in Hebrew translates son of the father. Bar as a prefix means son of. Abbas is from Abba, meaning father. His name translates son of the father. In the irony of this moment, Pilate hands over the son of the father, Barabbas, to have the true son of the father crucified. And Eusebius, who's a 4th century Roman historian, Eusebius writes that Pontius Pilate will be recalled to Rome. He will fail his probation because of this. And Eusebius says that Pontius Pilate, under tremendous guilt, will commit suicide. So very tragic here. A man who gave in to the cries of the people. Look, folks, stand firm for what you believe. Of course, we can look at this in a bigger bird's eye view and say, well, this was God's providential plan that Jesus should be crucified, that he should die. And so Pontius Pilate was part of this whole thing. And, but um, the lesson for us in a very practical way, don't cave to the voices of the many people. You, as far as you know, being Christians is concerned, make sure you're following the voice of the Lord and not the clamor of a bunch of people around you. In Mark 15, 15, it says, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Listen to that. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, Luke skips that part about his flogging, goes right into the crucifixion. But what would typically happen then was someone on the way to the cross, on the way to crucifixion. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Persians did. The Romans perfected it, though, if you can use that word over such a gruesome painful execution, a method of execution. But one of the first things that the Romans would do was that they would flog someone and they would use something that looked like this. In, in Latin, it was called the uh, flagellum. And it was, it's also known as the cat of nine tails, where you had, you had strips of leather attached to a single handle, but then w- embedded within the strips of leather were pieces of glass and metal and pieces of bone. And in fact, in excavations, they've discovered these are some of the ancient Roman pieces of metal that would be attached to the ends of these whips. And, and so as they would whip someone, you can imagine the metal and the bone and um, the glass would shred someone's flesh. And most criminals died being beaten before they even got to the cross. Most died from the scourging and the whipping because of the blood loss and just how they would go into shock. Their body would shut down. They'd go into shock. And most criminals would die before they even got to to be crucified. So, So you have to imagine the excruciating flogging and the agony of what Jesus endured even before he gets to the cross. Now it says here, back in the story, verse 26, that as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern Libya. Um, you know, Libya's in the news these days. Uh, this guy, Simon, from Libya. Uh, so the Romans seized him. He was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, typically, a, the cross 
The total weight of the cross, cross beam and the upright, was about 300 pounds. But prisoners, criminals were, were supposed to carry just the cross beam, which weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. You have to imagine, after you've just gone through this horrible beating and scourging and whipping, and now they're going to place upon your back 75 to 125 pound cross beam for you to carry. And it was fanfare through the streets because the Romans wanted this as a deterrent to crime. See how this guy is? See how he looks? See him carrying his cross? This is what could happen to you if you try to uh, commit a crime against the Roman government. They would typically be naked, obviously for modesty reasons. The artwork portraying Jesus on the cross and movies portraying him carrying the cross up to Golgotha has him clothed somewhat. But typically, historically, they would have been naked as part of the humiliation of this parade. And Jesus, uh, under this excruciating agony of already receiving the whipping, becomes weakened because of that. So what do they do? The Romans seize this one innocent bystander from the crowd. You, you got you, Simon, from the region of Cyrene in Libya, you're going to carry this crossbeam. And he carries it behind Jesus. So Jesus is in front of him. I remember as a kid being in a church service, and we had a visiting missionary in the church where I was growing up. And somebody asked this question. I'll just never forget it. Couldn't tell you the missionary's name, couldn't tell you where he had been, couldn't tell you anything else about him. But I'll never forget this one question that was asked. It was just kind of a hypothetical question. He was asked, if you could be one person in all of the Bible, who would it be? And he said, Simon. And people looked around, oh, Simon Peter. Oh, yeah, that's kind of, that, yeah, that would be kind of one of my choices. And, and I remember him saying, no, 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 not Simon Peter. Simon of Cyrene. Because if there's any one thing I would love to have been able to do, was to have carried the cross for my Lord, who died for my sins. And I just remember as a kid, thinking about that vision of carrying the cross for Jesus, who dies for our sins. And for that reason, I've just never forgotten this story here because of that, that man's uh, testimony in that regard. So he carries this cross. Verse 27 says, A large number of people followed him, including women, who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, normally they would always be commending women who could have children. Jesus says, you know, you're going to come to the day when you're going to be praising the women who aren't pregnant and who don't have little children to care for because he says there's going to be a time of judgment that comes. And he adds on, he says, then they will say to the mountain, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, some of your Bibles, if you have a footnote, that part where Jesus quotes, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Some of your footnotes say Hosea 10 verse 8. And that is a quote from Hosea 10.8. But he's not looking back. See, Hosea is an ancient prophet. He's not looking back. He's looking forward. Jesus is. And this same passage is quoted in Revelation chapter 6. And I'll just read it. You don't need to turn. Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, having to do with the tribulation period. Revelation 6, 15 says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
In other words, Revelation says there will come a day when people will cry for death as a better alternative than the punishment that they are receiving because of the wrath of God that is poured out upon a God-forsaking, Christ-rejecting world. Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know